Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. In this episode, I talk with Robin DeWeese, who is a staffing manager for a major defense contractor. We talked about speaking up, even if it's not necessarily what the other person wants to hear. And we talked about developing agile, collaborative teams using the Scrum framework and a lot more. Welcome to The Indispensables. I'm Bruce Tolgan, and I am delighted to welcome Robin DeWeese to the podcast. After a very successful 30-plus year career in software engineering, quality, and executive leadership at a Fortune 500 defense contracting company, Robin is now working at one of the top privately held defense contracting firms in the Washington, D.C. area. Robin has been in the national security space for a long time. I've had the privilege of working with her. She's got a lot of tricks up her sleeve. She's a a certified Lean Six Sigma black belt. Uh, She's a certified transformational life and leadership coach. I am so glad to have you on the podcast. Welcome to The Indispensables. Thank you very much, Bruce. I am so excited to be here. Uh, We met uh, a number of years ago at a big conference uh, where uh, I moderated a panel that you were on and uh, we've stayed in touch ever since. Absolutely. And as I mentioned the other day, I still use the notes that I took from our session. Uh, You provided a lot of great information that has helped me with uh, staffing and resourcing, particularly for our younger generation. Uh, Well, that's uh, very kind of you to say. And uh, I will say before we proceed, also, thank you um, on, on behalf of myself and my family for all you've done to help keep America strong and the world safe. Thank you. Uh, so tell us, um, you know, how does somebody get to be where you are? What's your basic story? I'll tell you, Bruce, and this is one of my mantras. I consider myself a Jacqueline of all trades and a master of absolutely none of them. (laughs) I started out my, my career. I've always been interested in engineering. My dad was an engineer and I decided I really wanted to study computers but I also wanted to understand how they worked internally. And from that point, I decided to major in computer engineering. And I've had a great journey of working while I was in college. And I have had a lot of different training, a lot of different experience and exposures. And along the way, I didn't realize I was picking up a lot of tools. And I just kept picking up tools and putting them in my tool belt. And that has helped me along my career to be prepared to be a director of quality, looking at quality assurance over a variety of different programs, both here in the US as well as internationally. I've been a program manager, I've done hands-on technical work. So all of the work experiences I had have really helped propel me to where I am today. I'd love to drill down on that a little bit because I know in the large complex organizations in which you've been so successful, they're usually matrixed organizations, right? Uh, the essence of being a program manager uh, is like, you know, conducting a symphony while standing on one leg in the middle of a rowboat or something, uh, often having to coordinate the work of people from multiple disciplines, often not having them report directly to you, right? 
Uh, so the lines of authority are not always clear. You have to use a lot of influence. Uh, am I right about that? Absolutely. And I'll add that I've fallen in the water a few times while standing on one leg. <laughs> <laughs> but, but how do you herd those cats? How do you keep those frogs in that wheelbarrow? How do you do that? There is a lot of trust that goes into the roles and having strong relationships with people. This is something they don't teach you in engineering school or when you're studying differential equations in your classroom. And I always encourage people to also develop their softer skills. There are so many resources that will help you with your communications, that will help you with your writing, that will help you develop relationships and your networks. I've had the pleasure of developing a very, very wide network of people. And across the network, I think people feel like they can trust me. I, I tell the truth and I often say, you may not want to hear what I have to say, but know that I'm telling you the truth. And that way we can move forward and act upon it. And that really establishes a good relationship, even when the news isn't good, um, people remember that, that I was trustworthy and, and willing to work to try to resolve problems. Yeah, because if I'm understanding correctly, you're, you're trying to navigate people who might have uh, competing priorities, uh, who are um, competing with each other for limited resources, uh, trying to get their to-do item or their request, their ask pushed up higher on somebody else's radar, and you have to you have to manage all of those competing priorities and all those different uh, stakeholders, and 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 none of them are reporting to you, and yet you're the conductor. There is some servant leadership that's in there. You um, have to change your perspective and be willing to take your ego, which I have, and I'm competitive. I've played a lot of sports, and sometimes push that aside. And it's not a very easy thing to do, but being at least being conscious of it, I can pick and choose which battles I'm willing to go in and fight for. And one of the things I've learned, because sometimes even for the stakeholders who are the leaders, who are the ones who will be the final decision-making authority, I found that at least if I plant the seed, if I make my case, and, and knowing those stakeholders, are they the types that need a picture? Are they the types that just want data? Uh, are they the types that, you know, they need to feel like they're part of the solution, understanding who I'm working with, and then planting the seed and sometimes stepping back and crossing my fingers, hoping, praying, <laughs> all of the above, <laughs> that, that they will understand. And, and once you've done that, they can't unhear what, they, what, what I've told them. And so that can sometimes make a difference in influencing an outcome down the road. Boy, uh, I love what you're saying. And it's so complex and nuanced because what you're saying really is, okay, uh, here are a bunch of people working, let's say in a Fortune 500 company, you know, a large complex organization, a defense contractor, right? In the national security space, these people are not exactly uh, wallflowers, right? Everybody is competitive, some more competitive than others. Plenty of people have egos and plenty of them have a hard time putting those egos aside. And what you're really describing here is building trust through candor 
And you said, you know, sometimes you may not want to hear what I have to say, but you know, uh, I'm telling it like it is. I think that lines up with the seeds you might plant, right? Because if you're planting a seed and I love that you say they can't unhear it, uh, maybe at first they don't like it, but, but what might happen is over time they start to realize, wow, that's exactly what Robin said. And that's turning out to be exactly what we needed to do. And now the only reason we're three weeks or three months late is because we didn't do what she said in the first place. Exactly. They're in decision-making positions and, and they are in those positions for a reason. So for example, I'll, I'll, I'll never forget we were working on a project and the division general manager and vice president was not happy about a decision. And there were a lot of us involved in emails back and forth. And slowly but surely, I could watch the program managers, the operating unit directors backing out of the conversation. And it was just the two of us. It was me as a director and the division general manager who was pretty firm in his position. And, and I had to sit down and think, is this something that I really want to stand up and fight for? Do I feel like, and I'm thinking about the mission. It's not so much about the person, but in terms of making sure that he and everyone else understands the impact or possible impact to the mission, because there are no guarantees, but there's something that I'm seeing that I think he needs to be aware of. Everybody else backed off and I wouldn't. <laughs> and so he, would, he sent an email with his opinion and I sent my opinion and the rationale why. And every time I tried to add a little bit more data to make sure that he was truly understanding what I was saying. And so that's just an example of, and, and then eventually I said, you've heard my position um, and, and I don't have anything else to add and, and, and ended it there. So, so that sounds like a combination of choosing your battles and um, sounds to me like putting impact to the mission front and center is a good rule for choosing the right battles and choosing them not on the basis of ego. It is about the mission. That's what we're paid to do. In that role, I was a quality director. And, and so I had to be able to stand on what I believe to be true and impactful. If I was an engineer, if I was the financial person, if I see something, even if it's outside of my wheelhouse, that I think is going to have an impact to the mission, it's our responsibility to say something. There are plenty of subject matter experts that can come in. Maybe they refute what we're saying. Maybe they see something completely different, or maybe they, they see a perspective that they hadn't seen before. But if we're all in it to achieve the outcome that our customers are paying us for, then it's up to us to stay focused on that, not on the people. Because sometimes, you know, you just have a bad day. You know, you don't want to kick the dog. We love the dog. But dude, you just, you need to get some frustration out. You haven't, weren't able to get to the gym to get it out and it, it lands elsewhere. Yeah. And I mean, it's always, I always say, you know, the reason I don't have to um, have a real job is because people are so complicated. And, uh, you know, if people were purely rational, then, uh, you know, what would I, I'd have to, I'd have to get a real job. Uh, you know, it's precisely because people are so sensitive and people um, are idiosyncratic. 
And uh, they're not always rational. And sometimes their emotions get the better of them. Sometimes their mood gets the better of them. But in your, in your situation you're describing as a director of quality, uh, you know, it's your responsibility to push the engineers to make sure that they're doing the change orders properly and documentation properly. And, you know, engineers see that as paperwork and, and you're like, yeah, and it's my job to make sure it gets done. Exactly. <laughs> because, you know, if that satellite doesn't fly or that, you know, rocket doesn't uh, fire or that whatever it is, um, then, um, you know, in the end, we failed the mission. Exactly. So how do you, uh, on the other side of uh, these um, situations where you may be at odds, um, how do you maintain the personal side of the rapport? Or I, I don't mean like you have to be best friends and, and, and have lunch together, but on the other side of that, how do you keep working with that person? Uh, Sometimes you have to care. You, know, you just have to care because it's another human being that's on the other side. And you don't always know what's going on in their life. Or maybe no one has asked them, how are you today? You know, what's really going on? Or have you had a, a vacation or a break? We all have things that are going on in our lives. And being curious is a great way to do that. We've, um, I think I was in a meeting earlier today, and we were talking about organizational changes. Things are constantly changing. And given COVID, Things are going to continue to change and we're not together anymore. So you don't even have the chance to see people. Uh, you oftentimes just hear their voice and taking the time to inquire, how's your day, you know, being interested in some of their hobbies to see what they're, they're doing or are they able to get to their hobbies to know that maybe they just need a break or a distraction from work or COVID or what their current situation is, is often helpful. So that's the sort of personal rapport building. Um, and that's true before, during, and after, right? That of course you got to focus on those shared work. That's what you have in common, but also acknowledging and recognizing that, Hey, this is a human being here, uh, with a life. And, uh, there would be something kind of peculiar about being so antiseptic about the relationship as to not have as to, you know, to work with somebody for days, weeks, months, years, and know nothing about their, uh, uh, outside of work, uh, life. Right. But, but, but when you have a conflict, like the one you described with the vice president general manager, and, you know, you've put your point of view forward, um, knowing you, I'm guessing that you turned out to be right on the other side of that, you know, some people will be less cooperative, less uh, apt to want to collaborate with you. Uh, some people are able to put their ego aside and are able to put the mission and the work first and actually, you know, might prefer to work with you going forward because instead of backing out of that argument, you gave them a chance to avoid that mistake. I think he had a lot of respect for the fact that I stood up or something that I believed in. And it really didn't have an impact on our relationship. It, definitely nothing negative in terms of our relationship. And I think there's also an amount of respect that was developed that 
especially since everyone else became quiet about that particular situation. And that, that I was so impassioned about making sure that the point was clear. So I think it, in that case, it, it worked out in my favor. But like you've said, sometimes there are people who, who don't, don't respect you. Um, they feel like it has been a negative reflection on them, maybe if they didn't listen to you or that you were calling them out. And those situations are tough. I, I think you, you can't let people change who you are. You have to continue to do your job, do your job well. And, and sometimes maybe you have to do something about it. There, there are a couple of things. I was thinking of an example of um, where I inquired about something and expressed that there, were, there was a problem. And uh, the person and her boss uh, were both part of the conversation. And this person was, this manager was not happy with what I shared. And um, she she went on a long rant about, you know, <clears throat> my personal objectives, which had nothing to do with it. I didn't know where it was coming from, right? All of a sudden, out of left field, I hear someone talking about my personal interests and desires towards a different group, and and I was upset about it. And 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 this was being attributed to you. Yes, yes, it was. I had a personal preference for one team versus her team. And this was all part of what she brought. I had nothing, at least I didn't think it had anything to do with the conversation. And it really upset me, Bruce. It honestly upset me. Yeah, I don't blame you. Rather than reacting in the emotion, I did shift to what what are we trying to achieve here? But as soon as we got off the telephone call, as soon as we got out of the meeting, I had to get up and walk around my space. (laughs) And I thought about it and I was frustrated by it. I was actually upset by it. So I called her manager who was on the call and I said, can you help me understand what just happened? Why did all of these other topics come up as part of what we were trying to address? He said he didn't understand it either. Um, And I, you know, I was a little worried about calling her manager, but sometimes you have to do that. Either address the person directly or address their manager and say, this was inappropriate because of, and, and explain why, not just that it's inappropriate, And so here's a technique that I have used um, that says, when you did X, it made me feel Y. So when you accused me of favoring another group and that I wasn't giving you what you needed, it made me feel like somewhere I had missed the boat, that we disconnected somewhere. And here's what I'd like to do in the future going forward so that we have a solution or we can talk about, I've shared my preference. If you don't agree with that, let's come up with something we can both mutually agree to. Maybe that's an example of, hey, this person might not want to hear this, but let's hope that the person will respect the fact that you are being honest and transparent and that ultimately it will be a trust builder. Uh, and, and particularly in an example like this, because really what that person's saying is you're making a, you're preferring another team for some reason other than uh, mission outcomes. And, and that's what I'm guessing you found so objectionable. I mean, for one thing, having somebody try to read your mind and say, you, you know, this is what you think is um, at best irritating and, you know, at worst offensive. But given your level of integrity and mission commitment, 
Um, I would, I, I'm, I'm guessing that that's what hurt about it. it. It did. I didn't know where those comments came from because they weren't true. <laughs> when I searched myself, both the evidence as well as the way I felt were not correct. Yeah, I, I, I love the you say when you searched yourself, and I think you know it's it's um there's there's some personal vulnerability and personal risk taking in using the technique you described and the formulation of when you said X, it made me, I felt Y. When you said X, I felt Y. I think there's a certain amount of, you know, extending vulnerability there. And I think uh, extending vulnerability from a position of strength and confidence uh, is, is really a powerful technique. Of course, some people will get very defensive. How did it, how did it go? It, I think, at least for that situation, we were able to resolve that that I wasn't trying to to uh, ignore that particular group. That somewhere, one of us was missing some data, and let's just get back on track and fix the problem. And and it also became a coaching moment for her boss. That's what what he said was, "This is giving me an example because he was there. He was an observer." He could actually go back and coach her as a manager to say, you know, this is what I saw as someone who was independent to the situation. So in general, um, I know uh, you have done a lot of mentoring uh, of young professionals over the course of your career. Don't get me wrong. I don't mean to imply that uh, your 30 plus career makes you anything but young. Uh, although I think you and I might be around the same uh, vintage as as my father would say, <laughs> but uh, but but you've taken a real interest in uh, in in mentoring young professionals uh, and bringing them along on the mission as well. Uh, what's your perspective on that? They actually give me energy. I love to see the undeveloped potential of these early careers. And a lot of them don't even know the gifts and talents that they bring to the table. And uh, I will often, as I get to know some of the, I call them early careers, you know, they could be college interns or they could have one to two years of experience. As I get to know them, I like to throw them out into to tasks or opportunities. Things as simple as, hey, we have some new interns coming in. Can you meet them at the door and get them set up? with their equipment. And it starts to show their leadership skills because they will go above and beyond. I, there isn't much instruction in, in what I just described. They will get them seated. They will make sure that they have papers and pencils. They'll introduce people. They'll, they know how to get into some of the storerooms and they'll find monitors and, and get them set up with extra monitors so they have a really nice space. And that begins to give me the indication that they have some leadership skills that they're seeing beyond just the simple instructions that were given. And then I just continue to give them more. I just throw out very simple requests, but I watch how they develop and they blossom into um, more than more than what is expected. Yeah. And it's, it's a great example you gave because you're taking uh, relatively young professionals, early career folks um, and having them do the work of going and welcoming somebody who's a couple uh, rungs lower on the on the progression, um, an intern, and and you know very well uh, that there's nothing like an intern or a new uh, hire showing up and being like, "I'm here," and then everyone's kind of like, "Oh yeah, we forgot you were coming today." You know, uh, well, why don't you sit over there while we figure out what to do with you? 
And the difference between that and having a welcoming committee, essentially of people who are close in age, people who are uh, almost peers, people who are just beyond in terms of their career. So it's a gift to both of them in that case. That's what I was going to say. It's a gift to both of them because that younger person now sees I don't need to be like you or me, Bruce, you know, in our early 30s. I'll say we're, you know, somewhere in our 30s since we started our career. <laughs> but they get to see somebody who is in what they perceive as a leadership role. They're making the decisions. Now they can see themselves doing that in a year or two also. And, and of course, because they're coming into um, a position where, uh, over a short period of time, they're going to have access to really um, important, confidential, in some cases, classified information. Uh, they're going to be playing a role, um, even if it's just you know a, a, a cog in a wheel. Uh, they're going to be playing a role in in something that is profoundly meaningful. So you know, here you're trying to uh, get somebody on board and up to speed given that you're um, in, in, in the position now of providing cybersecurity technical staffing support, um, you know, these people are coming into really meaningful roles and you, you need to sort of uh, have shortcuts for testing their, their, their MO, their way of operating. Um, are there other techniques you have for sort of uh, poking at them? <laughs> no, don't touch. Right. But for, for sort of testing their metal, as it were. There are. And um, as you know, especially our millennials who, who are in place, things are different than they were when I was coming up in engineering. So one of the things and I've seen this to be consistent with multiple groups when we're doing some engineering work. I will give them uh, help them to understand the requirements, help them to understand the functionality. And we work in what's called Agile. And one of the, the types of Agile is, um, is Agile Scrum. And I throw them into a Scrum. I don't identify who the lead is going to be. I don't assign the work to anyone. I come in and I provide them the general requirements of what they're going to build. And I let them know that they will meet daily. They figure out what time they'll meet. They'll figure out how long to talk about the work and who's going to do what. And there's within Six Sigma, there's there's a typical ways that teams work. They form, storm, then they reach a place where they're norming, and then they start really performing. So I let the team storm, and that typically takes, the forming and the storming takes about a week, maybe a week and a half, where they're trying to figure out who's going to lead and who's who is very strong technically, who can work on the requirements. And at about the week and a half mark, then they start to norm, where the leader of the the scrum, the scrum master, maybe there's one or two, sort of self-identifies. The rest of the team figures out what their roles are going to be, and they, they begin to take on assignments. And it's a little slow. I don't see much development, but some things start to pop up. At about the third week, they exponentially take off. They really don't need me. I show up and give them a little feedback of maybe they've missed the mark with something, but it has been consistent. I've done this with at least 10 teams and they all follow the same model about the same time frame too. And, and so I love working with the millennials because they reach that point. They're making, even making design decisions, requirement decisions without me. 
that, that's a great uh, way to describe uh, the scrum process, uh, agile uh, development process, just um, and, and let me just say, you know, uh, scrum agile can be applied to a lot of things. It, it comes out of the software development world. Um, and for people who are not as familiar with it, um, maybe you can just um, explain what it is. Uh, it's it's um, I wouldn't say it's a self-managed team, but I would say it's a format to uh, put structure around a team that evolves very quickly, organically from the process itself. But how, how would you just for, for people who don't know what Scrum is, how would you how would you explain it? And that was actually a great description. I would describe it as a task, like you said, whether it's software or it can be a project related task that you're you're taking on. And you have someone that understands the requirements, the requirements are defined, and then the teams is particularly with, with Scrum, and we tend to use Kanban boards. It's almost like taking a post-it and writing all of the steps or things you need to do on the post-it and sticking it on a wall, and then everybody on the team grabs a post-it and works on that piece of the project until it, it comes together. And it's agile because you, you try to have enough work done within a week or two weeks that you can actually demonstrate to your customer what you've done. And then if things need to change, it's agile because you can go back in and make some changes to things. It's not like you've waited till the end of the project and realize you've missed the mark. So basically you start with a concrete goal, clear parameters and guidelines and a timeline. Mm -hmm. You pull in the professionals with the skill sets uh, who, can, who can fill appropriate roles and take on the tasks and responsibilities. And then so that's right forming and then storming i think is brainstorming right no it's actually i don't know you very well you seem to be talking a lot i want to talk but i'm quiet and so we're we're sort of figuring each other out and it might come across as not being positive right so we're actually having a little bit of conflict right maybe butting heads a little bit but it's beginning to to help us understand each other and then, and then you move out of that phase because I get, oh, Bruce, Bruce is leading. Yeah, that's cool. So, um, so then, then you can actually move into norming where you're, you're beginning to actually work. Yeah, that's interesting. I always sort of uh, uh, put in my head, I thought, well, they say storming because it rhymes with forming and norming. Uh, and, uh, but I always think of it as brainstorming. This is where we start to, but that's not the etymology, huh? No, no, it's it's actually a little bit of as as you're you know you're kind of polite when you first meet someone, but then when you work with them a little bit more, a little bit of more of your true self comes out, and you're beginning to figure out how the group is going to work together. And usually it levels off, people balance out, and uh, and you're able to get back to normal. And then you and then your 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 norming means okay, now we have our ground rules, our guidelines for how we're going to work together. Uh, now we have our protocols, when we're going to meet, how we're going to meet, who's going to lead the discussion. And the scrum master is not the boss, but really the, the, the discussion facilitator. Yes. And, and then um, you work in sprints, right? Uh, and so how long is a typical sprint? Usually two weeks. Two weeks is a good amount of time to actually get something done so that you can demonstrate it to your customer or the system users. 
Um, and then, uh, but of course, these might be long range projects that could go on for months and months and months and months and months. Um, but you, you, you can show deliverables in two week increments. Absolutely. So you're incrementally building the system. And again, if you need to, to go back and change something, because my thought was having the entire background light blue would be perfect. But now that I'm seeing it, light blue just does not fit my mood. I really want it hot pink. So I can go back and change it. And I haven't developed the whole system. And I've always uh, been under the impression that for software development or, or really for any development project, uh, it's a great way to run a team. But I sometimes see Scrum being applied uh, in other settings and it seems a little bit like a, a, a square peg in a round hole. What do you think about that? And maybe I just don't know Scrum well enough. No, sometimes people uh, take liberties with the purpose and it can become a free for all. It's, I didn't finish this, but I want to go work on that. And, and it's not very organized and structured. And I think that's a misunderstanding about Agile. It really is a structured method of achieving an outcome. And, and that's why you have a scrum master. Part of the job of the scrum master, and again, I use scrum masters who are in college who have never used Agile before, but I always have them read a little bit about Agile so they get an idea and, and they understand the scrum master takes leadership of the meeting and keeps it focused. And when someone wants to go off on a tangent, they try to bring them back to you're supposed to describe what you did today, what you were supposed to work on, what you did work on, what your bottlenecks are. And then any of those problems or bottlenecks, the scrum master is responsible for either going off and fixing or letting somebody else know, hey, we're stuck or this person is stuck. Yeah, so that's really helpful detail. So part of the conversation is, okay, we meet up and it's um, what were you uh, tasked to work on or what did you take responsibility for? Uh, what's your performance in relation to that expectation? And then bottlenecks uh, get sort of put back on the table for either resolution or agreeing on next steps or maybe doing some research. Or uh, and, and somebody might take responsibility for looking into that bottleneck. And they could. Typically, the scrum master is responsible for figuring out who's going to do that. The idea with the team is that they keep moving that if there's a bottleneck, then maybe they're not going to complete their task for, for this sprint because of the bottleneck, but somebody else has the action to go resolve the bottleneck and then they can move on to another task. As an example, I'm, I'm actually working with a team now and they're using Agile Scrum and they ran into a problem with one of the design tools that they seem to um, access has been taken away so they couldn't get the work done. And the, they, I sit in on the scrums and the scrum master said, this is a problem. I have responsibility for resolving that rather than everybody sitting down and not doing anything. They've moved on to another task. And that's another thing that makes it agile, right? That you can, all right, you, you take that work around and I'll try to clear this bottleneck. Yeah, that's really interesting. And is that, um, uh, where does Six Sigma fit into that? I mean, I know it's very consistent with Six Sigma. Six Sigma is just you know, ongoing continuous improvement seems like Six Sigma and and Lean and uh, Agile work very well in sync. They do. Uh, 
Six Sigma, Lean Six Sigma is a continuous process improvement methodology that's based on data. You use your data to figure out where you have an opportunity to either become more efficient or more effective. So one of the things that, that I've done is, um, and it's funny, I currently have college hires, um, recent graduates who are working on an application for tracking our college hires. <laughs> So they actually get to understand what goes on behind the scenes, how we were able to hire them in addition to developing the technical application. And part of what we're looking for is how do we create efficiencies in our process and with the tool? And so using Six Sigma, I've gone back and looked at some data to understand where we can be more efficient in the way we hire or um, I've looked at the data, maybe we have a certain school where students decline our offers. That doesn't happen very much, but maybe there's a school where more of the students don't accept our, our offers. And so it might be more efficient for me to look elsewhere uh, rather than going back to that school and extending so many offers and having students decline. Okay. So that's an example of just real world application. Yes. And then they'll build, build, they build some of that data analytics into this tool that they're using with Agile Scrum. Yeah, that's so interesting. When did you uh, tune into Six Sigma? When did you, uh, because you're a Six Sigma black belt. So it, it's been a long time, probably about uh, 15 to 20 years ago. Uh, I, I, uh, the, one of the companies I worked for wanted to bring that into the way we do business so that we could be more efficient and more effective. And, and it really is the way I try to look at our processes. When uh, a lot of times we'll say, oh, this needs to be fixed or that needs to be fixed. And usually people are right. When you're living a process day to day, you tend to know where it needs to be improved. But you can verify that if you can collect some data around the process and create a baseline to show this is how we're performing today. And then you know what, when you make the process improvements, there are actually ways in Six Sigma to do a statistical significance to see if you actually had an impact on the process. And we've done that with our staffing, looking over the course of a few years with the improvements we've made, we've seen a huge impact on our ability to go out and hire people and get them on board. You might measure offer to acceptance rate, Right. You might measure acceptance to actual onboarding. And so that data allows you to have validation, right, of, of the effectiveness of what you're doing. Uh, so you're not just winging it, as it were. And that circles back to something we talked about earlier with um, interacting with other stakeholders in the organization. Now it's just not me being excited about what I just told you I did. I actually have some data. And for a lot of people, that's what drives them. If they can see the data and you can explain it to them, I always use the data in a story. And if I can use the data and show you that I have made an improvement, you're more likely to, be, to believe and understand how the changes have impacted what we've done. Yeah. And I mean, especially nowadays where we live in such a data rich environment and there's so much business intelligence uh, available that there, if, if you don't bring the data to the table, it's hard to get people to listen very long. But you have to know your stakeholder because not everybody's data driven, even though we have a lot of data. Again, something we talked about earlier in the discussion is 
knowing knowing your colleagues, your stakeholders, and knowing how how they receive information. Yeah, that's a really important point. Thank you for uh, uh, for circling back to that because you know my I mean my view is people who are not into data should be, and um, <laughs> but but it's very important to know if somebody's going to have a short attention span for data you're going to have to present to them in a very different way. Um, well, th this is such great stuff. Uh, I can't believe uh, we're, we're, we're nearing uh, uh, the end of our time. Uh, let me ask, um, what's your, say you hop on the elevator with, with somebody and you've got uh, an elevator ride to give them some career advice. What's your best uh, career advice? Some of it depends on on the age of who, who I'm talking to. I just had a conversation with a bunch of college hires that I was talking to today, and I told them we're going to brief this system we're developing to some leaders. And I told them, you don't know how that person can impact your your next opportunity. They might see your resume and think, I just saw that person in the elevator. So having your elevator speech <laughs> ready and not Fumbling through, uh, fumbling through it, is is huge. I had, um, and and the students know, and I tell them this, Bruce, that I'll be honest with you. Um, you have to be able to handle the truth. You may not like it, but I will tell you the truth. And if I can, I'll also tell you that. But I had some students who I was introducing to a number of executives, and I and they and executives will say, you know, oh, so what, tell me what you do. What are you working on? I work on ABC and I do software. So I said, time out, stop. They don't know what ABC is. They have a hundred programs in their portfolio and ABC isn't in their portfolio. So explain to them, describe the full name of the program and then tell them that you're a software engineer and give them a few examples of what you're working on. And then also let them know what you want to do in this company. And I said, this is your opportunity. And, and they'll, Pick up the conversation from there. So I think regardless of how long you've been working is having, <laughs> having your elevator speech, which is what you were asking me about, ready at a moment's notice so that if you meet someone, you're able to, to quickly share with them. And, and particularly leaders will pick up on that and they'll ask you probing questions that will help them to get to know you better. Yeah. So being able to describe, and it sounds like what you're really saying is that your advice to them is, don't just say, here's what I'm working on, but here's what I do to add value. And what you want to do, um, because that's the other thing. If you're trying to go somewhere, we, you know, I work in cyber and there are so many people that want to get into pen testing or highly sensitive work. And if I don't know that that's what you want to do, then, then the likelihood that I'm going to help you is, is probably slim because I just, I don't know you and I don't know that that's where you want to go. Yeah, absolutely. That's, uh, that's, that's powerful. So here's what I actually do every day to add value. And, and here's where I want to go. Uh, and that's especially, it sounds like I know you, uh, you take a, uh, you have a predilection for working with college students and early careers. So, so that's, that's your advice for, especially for them, I'm guessing. Yes, exactly. Uh, well, that's very good advice. And Robin Deweese, Thank you for the work you do, and uh, thank you for being a guest on The Indispensables. Thank you very much for the opportunity, Bruce. I've enjoyed it, as always. Ah, it's fantastic. 
In our next episode, I'll talk with Jennifer Russo, Senior Director for Corporate Communications and HR Strategy at Banner Health. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. Learn more about GoToism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.